I thought a nice old man in the church where I grew up knew me really well when he set me up on a blind date. He knew that I worked with the youth group and taught Sunday school and hoped one day to be a missionary. And so I was really excited. And I was full of anticipation when he told me that his niece, who he described as a wonderful girl, was moving to town to live with him. He said he just knew that we would really, really hit it off. And so when he asked her, would you take her out when she comes to town? I said, yes. Besides that, I was from a small town in West Virginia and She was from Florida, and if nothing else, I was certain she would have a full set of teeth. (laughs) Anyway, after a couple of weeks of anticipation, I don't remember how long it was, the the time finally arrived for me to meet, you know, who I hoped would be my perfect date. She did have a full set of teeth, and I was certain that under all the makeup, she was probably a really pretty girl. And then I noticed her black leather jacket. Now, in 1981, a black leather jacket doesn't mean what a black leather jacket means today. And so I started to have this rising suspicion that maybe this wasn't going to be the perfect date I had dreamed of. And, of course, there were her jeans that looked like perhaps she may have just had them sewn on her before I arrived. (laughs) And then there were her very high-heeled shoes. And so the suspicion continued to rise in me. And then she insisted that we take her car, a 1980 Mustang, because her car had a cassette tape player, and my 1979 Dodge Magnum only had an 8-track player, and so we took her car. We turned her car on, and Led Zeppelin came blasting out of the speaker so loudly that they rattled. Did I mention I was a Sunday school teacher? And so I'm growing more confident this date is not going to work out like I hoped it might. And, and when we were out of sight of her uncle's house, she pulled out a pack of cigarettes and offered me one. By this point, I'm fairly certain that this girl from Florida, my day with her would be the first and the last, and at least on this particular occasion, I was a prophet. It was our only date. The, only man, the, the old man who set me up with this girl really didn't know me at all. Or if he did know me, he didn't really care about me, what I needed, what I wanted, or his niece. I'm sure she was just as drastically disappointed as I was. And so my excitement and my anticipation turned to disappointment. And you know what I'm talking about if you've ever been on a blind date before. You know what I'm talking about. But it doesn't matter how many blind dates we've been on. We're always hopeful that this one might be the one. That perhaps this time the person who is setting us up got it right and picked out just the right person for us. And so we have this measure of excitement and anticipation about our blind date. I want us to capture that sense of excitement, that sense of anticipation over the course of the next four weeks as we prepare uh, to celebrate Easter Sunday. As we look at, at the person of Jesus, in a sense as our blind date, before we ever met him, before we ever knew him, before anyone ever saw him in person, his father set us up with him. This servant, this amazing person, this perfect match, because the father knows us perfectly, knows exactly who we need. Scripture says that the church, us, we are the bride of Christ and he is our groom. But before we ever met him, he loved us. As we approach Easter, we should be filled with a sense of excitement and anticipation. We should be overwhelmed as we watch Jesus going to the cross. 
Such was His love for us. He, he planned it long ago. Long, long ago. Long before we ever met Him, He loved us. Which tells me that we weren't an afterthought. Not to the Lord. It tells me that Jesus didn't just throw something together for us at the last minute. He made great, he made great plans to demonstrate His love for us. And so we're going to see that and what are called the servant songs in Isaiah. There are four of them. Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52 slash 53. Daniel, as he preached on Mark, Mark last week, prepared us so beautifully for this. He said, really, the Gospels are part two of the Gospel that really began in Isaiah. It was planned for us that long ago. And so with that in mind, we come once again this morning to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. I want to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God, Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. This is the Lord speaking. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word. We need your spirit now to be at work within us, Lord, to open our eyes and our hearts to see and understand your truth. Or to, to see you for, for who you are so that we love you more and we want to follow you more closely. So bless us toward that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. As I mentioned earlier, we began our new series in Christian education uh, this morning on worldviews. And we're studying worldviews because we want to be very intentional uh, about observing other people, about listening to other people what they think, how they feel, how they approach the world, so that knowing that, we can apply the truth of the Word of God. We can apply the gospel to them in a way that makes sense, in a way that intersects with their life so that they're not needing one thing and we're addressing something totally other than that. And that's what God is doing in this passage that we've just read from Isaiah. People in Isaiah's day had a worldview, just as you and I and people of our day have a worldview. And so God addresses their worldview in a way that exposes it really at its weakest point so that he can demonstrate to these people with this worldview that he is truly the one and only true and living God. Because see, these people were trapped within this system, within their worldview. Everything was interconnected like this. People, the universe... Their gods, they formed this loop that they could not get out of. They could not rise above. What they saw around them believed always had been. They believed it always would be. The gods of the people to whom Isaiah spoke, they couldn't explain the past. They couldn't explain the universe, how it came to be. The gods that the people worshipped, they couldn't explain the future. They couldn't tell them one thing that was to come to pass. If something had never happened before, they couldn't explain it. And so it was this hopeless system. And it's at this point that God introduces to these people his servant, 
the Messiah, the one who is perfect for us because he's sent by the one who knows us perfectly, the one with whom we will want to have a a relationship. And so through Isaiah, God exposes the belief system of the people of that day, its hopelessness, the fact that it has no answers, no meaningful answers for life, so that he can introduce them to this perfect match. Their system is not one. It's one of disappointment and frustration. Look, if you will, in Isaiah chapter 41, just two verses above, verses 28 and 29. This uh, encapsulates uh, the hopelessness of their worldview. And God is speaking in those verses, and he is talking about their gods that they worship. And he says, I look, but there's no one. No one among them to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their molten images are but wind and confusion. See, the idols they worship are part of their own system. They carve them with their own hand. Or or, or they cast them uh, in some sort of metal. They've got to carry their idols. Back up in verse 7, it tells us that the idols have to be nailed down so they don't topple over. They're not gods at all. They're wind and confusion. Question them, but they can't answer because they're not gods at all. Because if, if those are gods and they're not outside the system, if they're not outside the loop, then they cannot be gods at all. It seems to me that qualifying for God status, you've got to be higher than, bigger than, beyond the system of which you're a part. Please remember, because I have to remind myself of this, there really are no other gods You know, there aren't. I always have to remind myself of that. It's not as if God is the best one in this field of competitors, that that he rises above to the top. Well, I'm better than the other gods. No, there are no other gods. He's the one and only true and living God. And that's what he is demonstrating here. And so he calls the people to to look at, uh, to to behold, to to see uh, those that they worship. Because when you look at them, when they look at their worldview and they look at their gods, it will be apparent to them their um, inability to, to speak, to answer. They're, they're part of their own making. You know, I was chatting with a friend this week. Uh, he's a new friend. And so I was talking to him about spiritual things. And he said to me, well, you know what? I'm not really a religious kind of guy. You know, he said, I, I recently watched a, a video on intelligent design, but I was intrigued but not convinced. He said, but then you know what? I'm not really convinced about the science on the other side either. He said, it's all just theories. Even Darwin, he said, it's nothing but theories. So I just pray for good waves. I thought, even, oh, you know, like, woo-doo-doo-doo waves. You know, they kind of... He said, no, dude, I mean ocean waves, like surfing. <laughs> he said, I just pray for good waves. And so that's his theory. That's his worldview. If you can't find answers, if you don't really know what to believe, hey, go surf. What's informing your worldview? How you look at the world? How you make sense of it? How you make your decisions? How much of your worldview is based on Scripture, the truth of God? How much of it is based on or influenced by movies you see? Uh, Talk shows you watch? Something you read, a novel uh, or a magazine? And what's the combination What's the percentage of each one of those? 25% scripture, 25%? I mean, what is it? Where is your worldview beyond you? Or is it? Where is your worldview dependent 
on yourself or another human being? Where is it independent of you? Because if our worldview does not transcend us in some way, then it is as limited as we are. If it's part of the system of which we're a part, then, then where we are weak, it is weak. Where we cannot answer, it cannot answer. And some people are okay with that. You know, you, you, you live and then you die. That's it. There's nothing grand, nothing transcendent, nothing beyond us. There's really no meaning to life, just wind and confusion. But listen, that's not true. God tells us so. And for those who care to believe that there's something beyond what our minds can create or conceive or plan, there's wonderful blessing. There's hope and there's meaning and there's purpose. And that's what God announces here in this passage. Long before Jesus comes to fulfill it, God promises it. And faith in what God promises, whenever He promises it, that's all He requires of us. Faith in what He promises, whenever He promises it, that's what God requires of us. And so He's setting us up here, creating a sense of longing for and excitement to meet the One who can answer our questions, to meet the One who can help us in our hopelessness, and to enter into a a, a relationship with Him, a long-term relationship with Him, an eternal relationship. So whereas... Verse 29 in chapter 41 in the Hebrew says, Behold, look at the false gods. Chapter 42, verse 1, begins with the same word, Behold. Because God's going to contrast the two. Behold, look at the false gods, and now look at my servant, the one that I am going to send to you. The one who's going to come, the one who's going to woo you, the one who is going to take you for his bride. As Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord who's coming, but who we have not yet met, it's to create the sense of longing and anticipation and excitement so that we say, yes, he sounds perfect. Just who I really need. I can't wait to meet him. And no wonder. Look in verse 1. God recommends this coming one to us by saying, he is my chosen one in whom I delight. If for no other reason than this reason... It's enough to make anyone long to meet this coming one, this servant. Enough to make us long to be in a relationship with him because he is so good. And he is so perfect in every way that he is the delight of God the Father. Can you imagine this servant, the Messiah? Jesus brings joy to the heart of God the Father. Twice during his public ministry, God said so. As I mentioned earlier, when he was baptized, he came out of the water. And God spoke from heaven, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. I delight in him. And the Spirit descended on him. On, on the mountain of transfiguration, a voice came from heaven. The disciples heard it. This is my Son. I am well pleased. God finds pleasure in, accepts, approves of, is never disappointed with this servant. And so you and I ought to be overwhelmed. Really? Really, we ought to be overwhelmed to think that the one who delights the heart of God in this way has been hand-chosen by God for us. He has been to be the one, the right one for us. God's best He gives to us. Look again in verse 1. 
God says that when he sends his servant, I will put my spirit on him. Now look back in verse 29, again of chapter 41. It says there, their images are but wind and confusion. And the word translated wind and the word translated spirit, ruah, are the exact same word. They're the same word. And so again, God is setting apart this servant, the one whom he will send from everything else that people have ever known or experienced. The idols of the people, their worldview, uh, they, they are empty. They are wind, they are confusion, but the spirit, uh, but the servant is full of the wind, the breath, the spirit of God himself. If God didn't want us to have answers, he wouldn't have sent this servant. If God didn't want us to have hope, he wouldn't have sent this servant. If God didn't want to give us what we needed, he wouldn't have sent this servant. He would have set us up with some completely different person. And we would have experienced utter and complete disappointment. But we cannot be disappointed with the one who is the delight of the Father, who is filled by the Spirit of God himself. He is the one. And so now as we move on, let's look at what this servant of the Lord will do. The key word in this servant song is justice. It appears three times. The servant is introduced as one who will bring forth justice. Look in verse 1. He will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3. He will bring forth justice. Verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. And the word justice means simply this. To set things right. To establish things as they ought to be. Kurt prayed it in his prayer this morning. I had no idea what he was going to say. Since the Garden of Eden, since sin entered the world, nothing has been as it's supposed to be. And that bothers us. It weighs on us. It keeps us awake at night because things in our life aren't the way they're supposed to be, and, and it frustrates us. When sin entered the world, there's nothing it didn't taint. Now, it changed everything. The ground is now cursed to produce thorns and thistles. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The lion does not lie down with the lamb. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The child doesn't play by the hole of the snake. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Sin devastates our lives and relationships. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Death steals life. That's not the way it's supposed to be. On a practical level, in Isaiah's own time, There were people who were rich and powerful. And instead of using the resources that God had given to them to help the poor and oppressed, they used them on themselves. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not in character with God. God calls His people to be an advocate for both the poor and the oppressed. In Isaiah's day, women, it says specifically in Scripture, cared more about having a fashionable wardrobe than they cared for their neighbor who had no food and was going hungry. They didn't care. All they wanted were their new, beautiful clothes. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Then or now. Not the way it's supposed to be. But most importantly, the heart of man is not the way it's supposed to be. The heart of man, because of sin, no longer goes toward God. It goes away from Him. And so the servant is going to come He's going to establish justice. He's going to set things right. He's going to make them the way they're supposed to be. And how is he going to do it? This servant is going to bring forth justice with compassion. For most of us, justice and compassion are mutually exclusive words. Justice 
is what we want to see the bad guy get at the end of the movie. That wicked, wicked woman, we want her to get justice. And usually the justice that we conceive in our mind doesn't look very compassionate, does it? We want them to get what's coming to them for the rotten, mean, despicable things that they have done. And so, here again, we see how different God is from us. God is so different in the way he acts from the way we act. His justice is done with compassion. Look at the beautiful part of these verses. Look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus doesn't throw away broken things as useless. That's not how he makes things right, by throwing them away. Jesus didn't throw away the woman caught in adultery. Others wanted to throw her away, to stone her to death. Jesus restored her. Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. And after Jesus was resurrected, when he was talking with Peter on the, on the beach, three times he said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter freed my sheep. You know, Jesus is putting Peter back together and preparing him for ministry. Jesus is in the business of taking broken, broken people and restoring him, them. That's how Jesus makes things right. With compassion, he restores. That's his kind of justice. And that's good news for us because I don't know about you, but sometimes circumstances and events in life make you feel really broken. And not just things that happen to you, but our own sinfulness breaks us. Jesus comes alongside and he doesn't break us. He doesn't snuff us out, even though that's what we deserve. Even though that's what others do to us and we do to other people. No, by his grace, he restores us. See, Satan's ministry is the opposite. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And scripture pictures him as accusing us before the Lord, always throwing up before the Lord all of our sins, always pointing out our faults, always reminding us of them. But God's reply, God's reply to the accusations of Satan is this. Behold my servant. Behold my son. He speaks in our defense. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's already paid for the sins of which Satan is accusing you and accusing me. Jesus has already paid for him. That's God's justice. God chooses you. and God chooses me, not because of who we are, or what we have to offer Him, but because of His Son, and what this servant can do in our lives. Failure in our lives, sin in our lives, and I might be only speaking to myself, but I don't think I am, make us think I might as well give up. How can the Lord ever use me like this? And so we've fallen into the mistake of thinking that God is only pleased with us when we're strong. God is only pleased with us when we have it all together spiritually. God is only pleased with us when we do not struggle with sin. But this passage exposes the lie of that thinking. The Lord restores the broken and the bruised and the nearly extinguished. That's why Jesus went to the cross. His body broken, His body bruised, so that we could be restored, not broken. His life snuffed out, taken away, so that ours could burn brightly again. That's the justice of God. And I want to conclude with this last bit of good news. Look in verse 4. The servant, he will not falter 
or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. The Lord doesn't give up. The Lord doesn't get faint-hearted. The Lord doesn't get worn out or grow weary. Temptation, temptation cannot divert him from his purpose. It did not. The cross, its agony, its suffering could not divert him from his purpose to bring forth justice on earth, to bring forth justice in you and me. He won't give up on us. Is that good news? Even when we have to say, here I am, Lord, back again, doing the same things. Can you ever forgive me? God's answer will be the same. Behold my servant, of course, He will forgive. He will not give up on the world he's created, that he loves. He will recreate it. And this is why this servant is so perfect for us. God has set us up with someone to to, to meet our needs exactly. The servant of the Lord, filled with the Spirit of God, well-pleasing to the Father, faithful, just, compassionate, never giving up. No wonder he's so perfect. He's everything that we need. And that's why verse 10 concludes this servant song with this. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. This is such good news that God has given to us the servant that we need and he is perfect for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you that as we read these words from Isaiah and know that they were written hundreds and hundreds of years before they ever came to pass. That alone demonstrates that you are unlike any other God that could ever be worshipped. You know the future. You plan the future. You put it in place. You said your servant would come. And Lord, he did. In the book of Isaiah, in these songs that we look at, such confirmation or that you are God, that you do know the future, that you control it and that you fulfill every word that you have promised. You did send your Son. Thank you, Lord, that he is just who we need. We need justice, and he provides it for us. Or we need to be set right, to be made right with you. And Jesus provides a way for us to do that. Father, I pray that you would encourage every heart here this morning by the way that, that you bring about justice in our lives. You don't come in with a, a, an army that, that crushes and beats and destroys. You come with grace and compassion and mercy. You heal us. You restore us. Lord, you set our feet on the right path. And for that, we give you praise and thanks. And so we we pray now, Lord, that as we continue in these weeks ahead, in these passages, that we would fix our eyes on you and be overwhelmed by the truth of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.